you have a Bible with you, open up to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, we're working through the conversion of Cornelius. And we started this last week, and we're probably going to finish today, Acts chapter 10, the second half. And the title for the sermon this morning is An Unreached People. An Unreached People. Acts chapter 10, we'll look down to verse 24 to the end of the chapter. And it says, on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging there in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I, fin- so I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation... Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that was sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from, the, from Galilee and after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did in the country and of of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead." And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and dead. To him, all prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Dear God, we're grateful today to be in your word. How grateful we are to read Acts 10. What an electric story this morning, a historical account of how you converted Cornelius from his Gentile roots to being interested in the things of the Jewish people. 
than to becoming a born-again Christian filled with the Holy Spirit. I pray that today you would encourage us as we examine this incredible conversion and that you would encourage us as well, God, that we want to be faithful to be like Peter, to go and tell others who've never really heard of the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the beauty of salvation. Be with us today as we participate in learning and growing together, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, hidden on a remote island of Indonesia, the Taliabu people lived in constant fear. For generations, they searched for meaning, for purpose, and for eternal life. They knew that there was a creator, but they did not know who he was. They faced very primitive conditions, constant hardship, and the thing that they feared most, death. God brought the Taliabu people the good news of the gospel through the missionaries, uh, two missionary families. There was Steve and Mary Linetti, who served actually as an outreach missions pastor at Grace Community Church back in the 90s. And the other couple was Daryl and Kyla Palmer. These were the two young missionary couples who were sent out by New Tribes Mission Agency. And in order to share Christ with the Taliabu tribe, these American missionaries first needed to build a relationship and learn the local language. The Taliabu were monolingual. Nobody else spoke their language but them. And because of this, there was no way to have any meaningful communication with the outside world. So after moving into their village, the missionaries took four long years to learn the Taliabu language and their culture. When they were finally able to communicate clearly, the missionaries began to share with them the great story beginning with God and creation in the book of Genesis. Over the next six months, they taught from creation all the way to the life of Christ. This approach seemed only right since the Taliabu had no idea who the God of the Bible was. This preparatory teaching included all of the biblical truths about God, man, sin, death, judgment, mercy, and grace. When the day finally came for them to teach the Taliabu about Christ, and it wasn't just one day, but even weeks of teaching about the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus and all the teachings of Christ. And of course, this all culminated in the crucifixion and the resurrection of our precious Savior. The Taliabu were cut to the heart. They were overwhelmed with their own sin and even more overwhelmed with the love of Jesus Christ. They finally understood that because of the perfect life, the substitutionary death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he and he alone was truly the way, the truth, and the life. Recently, Steve Lanetti said, there was a great turning to the Lord amongst those people. Well over 400 people came to Christ at that time. And I got to see firsthand what biblical church planting is all about because we just use the simple principles from Acts And throughout Paul's 13 epistles and planting that church, and we saw God do wonderful things there. Present day, there's a church well over 400 that has planted seven other churches. And since 1995, the church has basically been without missionaries on site. What a powerful testimony of the work of God through salvation in an unreached people group 
of our modern times. And this entire story is made up into a documentary that definitely ranks up there as one of my all-time favorite mission videos. It's called The Taliabu Story. If you've never seen that, you need to purchase that. You can purchase it off Amazon, and you need to watch that together with your family. Maybe you can stream it, I don't know, but it is an incredible, fantastic, true story of the conversion of these people. Well, this morning, we are looking at another unreached group of people in the household of Cornelius. We're going to see how the same message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that reached the Taliabu reached Cornelius and his family and his friends, and it changed them forever. And just as the new tribe's missionaries were faithful to go to Indonesia, Peter was faithful to go to Caesarea. To do the work of missions requires sacrifice. It requires hard work. It requires walking by faith. It requires dependence on the Lord. And it requires getting out of your comfort zone. Today, we're going to look at four headings to help us better understand the significance of the conversion of Cornelius. Number one, we'll look at the arrival of Peter and Caesarea. Then we'll look at the explanation from Cornelius the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles, and in the coming of the Holy Spirit. Let's start with number one, the arrival of Peter in Caesarea, verses 24 to 29. And if you are taking notes this morning, your first blank says, Cornelius couldn't have been more excited. He couldn't have been more excited. Verse 24, and on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. Now, last week, we looked at the first half of this chapter, and we looked at how God gave a vision to a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what is known as the Italian cohort. So he was a soldier who led at least 100 others under him. And verse 2 says that he was a devout man who feared God together with all his household. He gave alms to the poor. He prayed continually to God, but he was not yet born again. No amount of spiritual fervency can save you if you don't have the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact is no one can be saved without knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's more than just having a knowledge of who Christ is. There must be a mental affirmation that that this is true, that Jesus lived, that he died, that he was raised from the dead. And there must also be an internal conviction to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ who alone can save you. And so in his vision, the angel told Cornelius to send for one Simon who was called Peter. So he sent two of his servants and a devout soldier to Joppa. And the next day, as they were approaching Peter, he fell into a trance. Peter had a vision of his own. And in his vision, he saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet coming down from heaven. And it was filled with all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. In fact, if you look up at verse 13, Acts 10, 13, and there came a voice to him, and that voice was from Jesus, and he said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, verse 14, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. You remember after Seeing this vision, Peter at first was perplexed, 
But as he began to ponder, he realized that the old covenant dietary restrictions had been lifted. They'd been removed. We're now moving into the new covenant. And there's no longer a focus on dietary habits of God's people, but rather the focus is on the heart. And Peter also realizes that he can no longer see the Gentiles as being unclean just because they're Gentiles. God created all people equal before him, created all people in his image. He created people to have a relationship with them, with all who would repent and put their faith in Jesus. And Peter was being prepared to go to Caesarea where he would be able to preach the gospel and see God radically save both Cornelius and his household. Peter welcomed his new guests when they arrived there at his place in Joppa. And on the next day, he arose and went with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And now we're up to verse 24 again. That This is the following day where Peter arrives there at the house of Cornelia. And notice again, Cornelia is expecting them. He had called together his relatives and his close friends. Now, just as a reminder, Caesarea was in Israel, but it was a Gentile area. This city was a gift from King Herod the Great to Caesar. It had all the amenities of a thriving city, including a hippodrome. That's where horses race, a theater, an aqueduct, and a deep water harbor. Cornelius was a Roman. He was a Gentile, and yet he was devout. Scripture tells us that he prayed, that he gave to the poor, that he was a God-fearing man. And he was not a full proselyte, however, to the Jewish faith, for he had not been circumcised. He offered no sacrifices, and he was not allowed to enter into the temple. And so as Peter entered Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting him. He was excited to see him. And because of his exuberance and his exhilaration and his enthusiasm, Cornelius invited all of his relatives and his close friends. That would be like everybody being invited over to your house because you're expecting a special guest. Like sometimes we might throw a a huge spread for the Super Bowl or for a massive Christmas party and you're just inviting everybody over. But in this case, he's inviting everybody over because he wants them to hear what Peter has to say. Verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. I love this verse, not the part about he worshiped him, but I just love the fact that he's so eager to meet him. He met him at the door. He didn't have one of his servants greet him and bring him in. Cornelius wanted to be there. Cornelius wanted to to, to be there to greet Peter. He must have been overcome with emotion. God had been drawing Cornelius for some time. Cornelius had been responding to all the light that he had. And now God was bringing more light, more clarification, more teaching on what it really meant to know and to follow God. And so Cornelius fell down at his feet and he worshiped him. Now, Scripture teaches that whenever a man seeks to worship either an angel or a fellow man, he is told not to do so, but to worship God. In fact, a little bit later in Acts, in Acts 14, when Paul healed a crippled man in Lystra, the crowds got confused and thought that Barnabas was Zeus and that Paul was Hermes, and they wanted to make sacrifices for them. And yet we read in Acts 14, 14, and 15, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. 
and we bring you good news so that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So we don't worship people, right? We don't worship the messenger. We only worship God. Only he is worthy. Only he is to receive all blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And so Peter's going to correct Cornelius here, verses 26 and 27. We see your next blank. Peter remained humble and composed. Verse 26, but Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many people gathered. And Peter didn't want to be worshipped. He's not a false teacher. He's not looking for a lot of money or a lot of fame, right? Peter was not looking for any fanfare. He knew that he was just a man. He was a jar of clay. He was an earthen vessel. He was a created being in the image of God to bring glory to God and not to himself. Peter wanted all eyes on Jesus. Reminds me of Psalm 115, verse 1. It says, not unto us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Peter just wanted to reflect whatever attention there was there on the Lord Jesus Christ. God says in Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. First Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he might exalt you. And so we see here that Peter remained humble. He remained composed. He had come to minister to Cornelius and not to receive praise from him. And as we've already seen, Cornelius had invited his family and his friends. So when Peter came in, he found many people had gathered. He had not come in vain. He had come to make a difference in Caesarea for the cause of Christ. He had come to talk to Cornelius and anyone else who was gathered. And there was no turning away anyone. This was not a secretive event, but an opportunity to hear what Peter had to say. Oh, how we should be inviting our family and our friends to church. Right? I just like that about Cornelius. He's like, hey, everybody's got to hear this message. How good it would be if we were more regularly inviting people to church, inviting them to small group, inviting them to a men's breakfast or to a women's event how we should be inviting them to college Bible study or to youth group or to Awana. I mean, we desperately want the world to hear. And this is what we see in the heart of Cornelius. And he didn't even know what he was getting, but he was just eager for everybody to come. And then we read in verses 28 and 29, there's a clarification, a clarification of Peter's presence was warranted. Let me explain what I mean by that, he clarifies a little bit about who he is and why he's there and why this is so unusual. Verses 28 and 29, he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person uncommon or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why have you sent for me? Now, again, at first glance, particularly of verse 28 there, Peter's comments seem to lack friendliness and appear to be a verbal lesson of alienating oneself from his company, 
I mean, he's kind of putting them off, saying, hey, you know I'm not supposed to be here. You know I shouldn't be convening with you. I mean, Peter does, uh, does Peter think that he's better than others who were in the room? It might could be taken that way. Is he just condescending to their level out of his duty and just wants to put them down? Well, obviously, I don't believe that that's the case. I think that Cornelius and his relatives and friends are personally aware living in Israel, being exposed to Judaism, they're very aware that there was a strict separation of the rules that the Jews followed. And even though some Gentiles worshiped with the Jews in the local synagogue, they were unable to socialize together with them because of the Jewish laws on eating together. The Jews recognized only full converts to Judaism. And only these people would attain recognition in the Jewish community and therefore they could eat with them. The Gentiles of Cornelius' household knew that the Jews do not even buy their food from the Gentiles for fear of contamination. They knew that the Orthodox Jews were unwilling to even set foot into the home of a Gentile. So by entering Cornelius' house and possibly even eating something presented to him as a refreshment for his long journey, Peter must explain his Gentile, to his Gentile audience why he differs from the other Jews. If Peter neglected to explain his conduct that goes contrary to all Jewish practice, then he might have been regarded as being insincere and unreliable. Therefore, at the outset, Peter addresses this particular point, and he explains his social conduct by informing his listeners about God's revelation to him. And Peter tells them that God has shown him that he is not to call any person common or unclean. And now we see again the vision that Peter had, that the instructions from Jesus to kill and eat were more than just a dietary shift but there was also a monumental shift in culture, in conviction, and in community. And Peter came without objection because God told him to. Peter came because he was sent for. Peter came because the gospel was expanding beyond Jerusalem and beyond Judea and beyond Samaria. And now this is the first step in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Peter was to be a bridge between the Jew and the Gentile, and God himself had removed the race barrier. God will now accept Gentiles and, as pure and clean if they come through the blood of Jesus. And with these verses, Peter is pretty much saying that God does not require them to submit to circumcision. In the setting of the first century, Jews applied the words impure and unclean to the Gentiles in respect to not only the food laws, but also to circumcision. And this issue is going to be specifically addressed when the apostles and the elders and the other leaders in the church meet together for the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. And then Peter uh, asked straight up, why did you send for me? He wants to know exactly what it is that Cornelius and the Gentiles are seeking. And so now that we've seen the arrival of Peter, let's look at our second heading, number two, the explanation from Cornelius. Your next blank says, an angel appeared to Cornelius. Verse 30 reads, and Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. Cornelius explains his own vision. 
He was praying in the house around 3 p.m. when an angel, a man, as he describes him, stood before him in bright clothing. And we often hear Bible authors describing angels as men dressed in white garments and showing a supernatural radiance. And then in verse 31, your next blank, the angel affirmed Cornelius's character. Verse 31 says, the angel said, Cornelius, your prayers, uh, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. And so the angel is letting him know that God had heard his prayers and that he was aware of the alms that were given. God knows everything about us. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 3 and 4, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. God had been watching. God watches everyone. God knows everything. For the eyes of the Lord, 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Chronicles, I should say, 16.9, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. And so we understand Cornelius is not a Christian yet, but we also know that God is drawing him to saving faith. God is revealing more and more of himself to Cornelius Cornelius's heart is being softened. His interest in the things of God is growing. His desire to be pleasing to the Lord is observed. And this is a very encouraging sign. You ever had somebody you've been praying for, you've been witnessing to, and all of a sudden you see something turn in them and they start asking more questions. They start to give more interest about what's going on about your faith and they want to know what you think about current events and they want to know what does the Bible say and maybe they start visiting you at church and all of a sudden you can just see it. You're like, oh, God's got them. Oh, I'm fired up right now because they're asking questions. I see God at work and that's kind of what's going on with Cornelius. You could just tell this man is moving in the right direction and Peter is the next person in that, in that process of bringing him to saving faith. I also think it's interesting that Cornelius is not a Christian, and yet God answers his prayer. The question is often asked, does God answer the prayers of unbelievers? And I would just say, well, that's up to God. If it's a prayer like this, certainly he's interested. I don't think that he's to be treated as a genie where any believer or unbeliever alike can just ask for anything they want and demand God to answer it, right? And so we know that his heart is close to his children, but when an unbeliever prays a prayer of faith or a prayer, something to the effect of, God, reveal yourself to me. Show me that you're real. Help me to understand who you are. Those are the kinds of prayers that we probably all pray as you were coming to faith. And aren't you glad that God continued to reveal light to you and he began to reveal scripture to you and truth to you and the person of Christ to you. And I believe that that's what God is doing here with Cornelius. Somehow his prayer, I believe, had something to do with God. I just wanna know you. I wanna see you in all of your glory. I wanna know what it means to be a follower of the most high God. And so now God is bringing one of his messengers through the vision at first, and now one of his apostles, Peter, to come and preach the full gospel. We see here in your next blank, verse 32, the angel gave Cornelius clear instructions. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. And so the angel tells Cornelius exactly what it is he's to do. As we read in verses five, and, uh, five to six through the same chapter here, when the messengers come to Peter in Joppa, they report that 
the angel asked Cornelius to summon Peter because he would have a message for him. This verse, again, is making it clear that Cornelius is a Gentile, and he's calling upon Simon, which is Peter's Hebrew name. And so, again, it's just making it clear the Greek is calling for the Hebrew, and they are not supposed to meet. So Cornelius knew that he was breaking social constructs, and he knew that he was going out of bounds of the social norm, and he is simply obeying, though, what it is that the angel told him to do. And if Cornelius, who was not yet a Christian, could, order, uh, could obey orders from God, how much more should we, who've already been brought to saving faith, obey God's clear directions? You notice that, Cornelius, he's not saved. He's not a believer. The angel says to do something that's outside of the norm, and Cornelius obeys. When you see that, it should challenge you. How are you doing in obeying God? Isn't it interesting how some non-Christians obey God's word more than some Christians do? And please note, external obedience will not save the unbeliever, but it should be convicting to us when we see them acting with more care, more grace, more compassion than many Christians do. And then we read in verse 33, Cornelius is eagerly expecting a word from God. So I sent to you at once, and you have been kind enough to me. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Again, we see Cornelius walking by faith. We see him uh, with immediate obedience. We see Cornelius sending for Peter at once. We see that Cornelius is so thankful and grateful that Peter has come. And then we notice that he says, did you notice this? Verse 33, he says, we are here in the presence of God. So to hear a Gentile say that shows there's something going on in this guy's heart. They're there in the presence of God. They want to hear what was commanded of the Lord for Peter to speak. Cornelius acknowledges that they are in God's presence. This is God's world. It is God's work. It is God's message. And Cornelius is acknowledging the omnipresence of God. He knows that God is not only present at the temple with the Jews, but he also knows that God's presence is here with them in his Gentile home. Psalm 24 says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And so Cornelius knows he's in the presence of Almighty God. And we see that Cornelius wants to hear from God. The end of verse 33 again, he wants to know what has been commanded by the Lord to say to him. He doesn't just want to hear Peter's thoughts. He doesn't want to hear about Peter's preferences. He doesn't want to hear about Peter's opinions. He wants to hear from God, and he wants to hear it all. And he doesn't want Peter to hold back one single thing, no matter how hard it may be, no matter how life-altering it may be, no matter how different their lives had been, Cornelius wants to hear what God wants to reveal to him. We also know that Peter considers speaking for God a very serious and awesome responsibility. In fact, turn with me, if you will, just for a moment to 1 Peter chapter 4. So Cornelius is saying, hey, I want to hear from God. What does God have to say to me? And Peter writes about this later, the seriousness of speaking for God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks 
as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I love again 1 Peter 4.11, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Cornelius knew that. Peter knew about that. Peter's reminding us about that. When you're speaking for God, you better have the word of God opened up. You better be speaking from God's truth. And of course, Peter had divine revelation, both scripture and that which Christ had revealed to him. But just notice when he comes to speak, he's going to be speaking for God. Jesus had told Peter that he was responsible together with all the disciples to go and preach this message of the gospel over the whole world. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We know that the theme verse for Acts chapter one, verse eight, but you will receive, that caught you off guard. See there, you got to always be ready, but you will receive When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this is representing the beginning of the end of the earth since it's largely a Greek culture in Caesarea. Peter himself said in Acts 4.20, for we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so now we see this incredible opportunity in Caesarea for Peter to do just that, to preach the word of God. What an audience, what a joy and privilege for Peter to proclaim the gospel. God is now going to speak to them through his servant, Peter. Let me just ask you a question here in the middle of this passage. Are you ready to be that kind of mouthpiece for God today? Are you assuming that's just the preacher's responsibility or the elder's responsibility to speak the words of God? We all have that responsibility. We're all called to be ambassadors. We're all called to be a witness. We're all called to say, you know what? When that person at work asks me a question, when my friend at school asks me a question, when I have the opportunity to speak up, I'm gonna speak for God. I'm gonna speak his word. I'm gonna quote scripture. I'm gonna refer to the source of authority, which is the word of God. Are you ready? Are you ready to be that herald, that ambassador, that soldier in the Lord's army? That's what God's called us to. To speak for God, people need to hear from God. They don't need to hear from you, your political party, and some of your other preferences. They need to hear the gospel. They need to hear about Jesus. They need to hear that Jesus saves people and that Jesus alone can free them from their fear, from their guilt, and from their shame. And you got to remember, if God's given you that passion and that boldness and that urging to share that with somebody, he's probably preparing them to receive it. He's probably preparing their heart for a strong word from God. Don't let them down. Don't go soft. Don't go to just another place outside of clear biblical truth. Just go right to the heart. And in love and truth and grace, you share God's word with them. That's what we see Peter do. Peter's now arrived there in Cornelius' house in um, Caesarea. Uh, Cornelius has explained why it is that he sent for Peter. So here we are in our third heading, the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles, verses 34 to uh, to 43. Your next blank says, God intends to save people from every nation, verses 34 and 35. God intends to save people from every nation. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no 
partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. It's an incredible statement here when Peter says that God shows no partiality. That word partiality means to show favoritism. It means to be unjust and to treat one person better than another. It means to be a respecter of persons. So keep in mind that as we have been discussing, the Jews of Peter's day lived by the doctrine that God made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants, and they were God's chosen people. And this, of course, was right. God said so much as in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you. Talking about, again, between God and his chosen people, because the question's going to arise, well, doesn't God show partiality by choosing the Jews and not the Gentiles? That's the question I'm trying to answer. So, in, so Peter saying this is really building off of what God has already said in Deuteronomy 7, 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because that you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Then he says, but it was because, if you want to know why God chose Israel, it wasn't because they were many in number, they were the fewest. He says, it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So the problem was that because of this, the Jews despised the Gentiles because according to the Jews, God had rejected the Gentiles and had withheld his blessings from them. But the Jews should have also have been reminded that God had told Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So we have this balance here of God did choose Abraham and his descendants to be his chosen people. And yet it was through Abraham and his descendants and his chosen people that all the families of the earth would be blessed. That's what God says in Genesis 12, 3, that in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the Jews were God's chosen people, but the Jews were actually supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah 49, verse 6 I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So even under the old covenant, from Genesis to Isaiah, there's this emphasis of God's word and his truth and his light going to all the world. Now, how do we synthesize again these true truths that the Jews are God's chosen people, that God doesn't show favoritism? And my answer would be, is that God's not playing favorites when he chose the Jews. Remember, showing partiality means to unjustly treat one person as better than another. God has never treated anyone unjustly. To show favoritism says they act the same, I'm gonna treat one as another, and it also indicates that it's largely based on that person's position or their behavior. But that's not how God chooses people. He doesn't choose people for salvation according to your position or your behavior. And not even everybody who was a Jew was guaranteed entrance into the kingdom of God. Peter actually appeals to scripture when he says that God 
shows no favoritism. For instance, Moses tells the Israelites in the desert in Deuteronomy 10, 17, the Lord your God is a God of, is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty and awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Again, this verse reminds us that God chooses whom he chooses and it isn't because of the person. It's because of God's sovereign choice. The Lord chose Israel because he chose Israel. He didn't choose them because they were many. In fact, they were the fewest of all the peoples of the earth. He chose them because it was his divine prerogative. And he chose to honor the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God does not look at a person's external appearance, nationality, wealth, social status, or achievements. In the light of God's teaching given in a vision, Peter sets aside his ingrained bias against the Gentiles as he states truthfully and accepts the doctrine of God's impartiality. He is convinced that salvation belongs to all nations and not merely to Israel. And he now knows that his own earlier view of who God would choose and not choose was defective. He was somehow, again, assuming that God only had special grace for the covenant people of Israel. And yet now we see that this is changing. There were hints all along throughout the Old Testament with the new covenant. It's now Jesus blows the doors off of that philosophy as he fulfills the old covenant perfectly, moves into the new covenant perfectly, and then specifically tells his followers to go preach the gospel to all people. And so in verse 35, Peter says that anyone in any nation who fears the Lord and does what is right will be acceptable to him. Now, please be careful. This is not teaching the doctrine of universalism. It's not teaching the doctrine of works. This is teaching that anyone can be saved if they come to the place of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way they can do what is right is by coming into a right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And Peter had already said so much as in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So to fear God and to do the right thing means that you realize that God is holy, that you recognize your sin and that you repent and come to Jesus in saving faith. And that is exactly what Peter continues to preach as we hear the rest of his sermon here, verses 36 through 38. He talks about your next blank, good news comes through Jesus Christ, verses 36 to 38. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So those verses teach us that God sent the Messiah to save his people from their sins. And we say his people, we need everybody. Salvation did come first to the Jew, but then it also came to the Greek. And the Gentiles were indeed to be grafted in. And this all happens through the preaching of the good news. Be reminded this morning that the good news is the gospel. 
The good news is that you can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Romans 5, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Good news is seen in Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The good news is not that your 401k went up. Right? The good news isn't that your favorite team won the ball game. The good news is that Jesus is Lord of all. That's what good news is. Good news is Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord over all disease. He is Lord over demons. He is Lord over death. He's Lord over the devil. And that Jesus is Lord over your depravity. That's what's good news this morning. That you are not able to choose God on your own and you didn't even want to. You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, and yet we read in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's the good news. You were dead, he made you alive, and he did it through the gospel. And then Peter says, you guys know what happened. And he begins to reflect on the ministry of Jesus from the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry up in Galilee. There was this preparing for the way of the Lord. That was John the Baptist's whole message. I baptize you uh, with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And Peter presents his gospel account in chronological order. Again, first there was John the Baptist preparing the way. Then there was Jesus who grew up in Nazareth. Then there was the beginning of Jesus's ministry and the baptism of Jesus by the Holy Spirit who descended on him like a dove. And then God anointed Jesus with the spirit and with the power to fulfill the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 61.1, where Jesus says in Luke 4.18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So this is what Jesus did. He preached the good news. This is what Peter is now doing. He's preaching the good news. And so Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were dominated by the devil. Jesus set people free from their bondage to sin, their bondage to sickness, and their bondage to Satan. And wherever Jesus went, he was a blessing to people. Jesus performed miracles and signs because he was God in the flesh. And we also see here that God the Father was with God the Son. He constantly affirmed the Son. And the Son constantly proclaimed that he was here not to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father. And then in verses 39 through 41, we see that Jesus was crucified. He was resurrected and he appeared to many witnesses. There in verse 39, we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up or raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. 
So Peter is stating in these verses that he and the other apostles are indeed eyewitnesses to all that Jesus did. Jesus did what he did in the country and in the city. He was faithful to be the same in the crowd as he was in one-on-one situations. And what happened to Jesus? Peter tells us that they crucified him. They killed him. They hung him on a tree, on the cross. They killed the Son of God. They accused Jesus of committing blasphemy, and they turned him over to be crucified. And yet God raised him up on the third day, as we read also in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared not to all the people, but to those who had been chosen by God as his witnesses, except possibly for his appearance to the 500 brothers at one time in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Jesus shows himself exclusively to his immediate followers, to those who are faithful to him. One commentator said, God will not cast this pearl before swine. Jesus revealed himself to those that were of the most intimate relationship with him, to those who ate with him and those who drank with him. And on five occasions in Acts, the apostles said that they were indeed witnesses of the resurrected Christ. So Peter is no doubt preaching a similar message to what Paul preached in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So this is Peter telling Cornelius straight up, I don't know what you've heard about Jesus. I don't know what kind of uh, information has gotten to you, but I'm gonna tell you exactly what happened to Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. He was raised from the dead and he has appeared to many. And then we read in verses 42 through 43, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge, uh, to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And so Jesus gave the apostles the charge to preach his name, the gospel of salvation to all nations. This was the great commission. They were to proclaim Jesus. They were to tell people of his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection. And in addition to that, they were to proclaim that Jesus was the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. This reminds us Jesus is divine. He's on par with God the Father. God the Father has said, you are the judge. And we understand that there's lots of texts that say God judges, lots of texts that say Jesus judges. It's just showing this is the responsibility of the Godhead. And just as God judges the living and the dead, so also does Christ judge the living and the dead. Paul preaches the same message in Athens, Greece, Acts 17 on Mars Hill, verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he, referring to Jesus, will judge the world in righteousness 
by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. So all who believe in this Jesus will receive forgiveness of their sins through his name. We are forgiven when we confess. We are forgiven when we repent. We are forgiven when we believe that Jesus paid our sin debt by his perfect sacrifice. Peter places no restrictions or limitations on whom the gospel can save. Both Jew and Gentile can receive remission of their sins if they put their faith in Jesus. Everyone who turns to Christ will be saved. And everyone who rejects Christ will be judged. The Bible is binary. That word has been outdated in our culture. Well, it can't be this way or that way. Well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And everybody wants to insert a whole lot of possibilities because there's a whole lot of opinions and a whole lot of people who think a whole lot of things. But the Bible says it's heaven or it's hell. You're either forgiven or you'll be judged by Christ forever. People don't like that kind of preaching because it hurts and it's so black and white and I'm stepping on some toes and I'm going to keep stomping on them because that's what the Bible teaches. And to the Christian, we're like, that's just so refreshing. Thank you for the clarity. Thank you that I can see and understand all by the grace of God. And yet we know that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's nothing about the Christian faith that's trying to be exclusive. All are welcome, all are invited, all are called generally to come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, how about you this morning? This message isn't just for Cornelius in Caesarea two centuries ago. This is the message that you need to hear, that I need to hear. Have you believed in this Christ? Have you turned from your life of sin? Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? For he has been appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And what was the response to this incredible message of the gospel? You gotta love verses 44 through 48, the coming of the Holy Spirit. What happened to this message to these people? Your next blank says the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. You know, Peter's like, I'm not done with my sermon yet. The Holy Spirit is like, I don't care. You said enough. Here I come. <laughs> so it's just an amazing truth, right? He may not have been done with his message, but the Holy Spirit comes in power. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the Jews in Jerusalem in Acts 2, on the Samaritans in Samaria in Acts 8, and now on the Gentiles in Caesarea in Acts 10. And Peter explains what happened to the church in the next chapter, Acts 11:15. He's reflecting on this occurrence in Acts 11:15. He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Are you seeing the connection? Just like he fell on us at Pentecost, he's now falling on the Gentiles. In fact, this is the Gentile Pentecost. 
This is the Holy Spirit being poured out in the same way, with the same power, with the same result. It should also be plain that the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and in their hearts believed what Peter was preaching was true. The Holy Spirit doesn't fall on people who don't believe. You can't just get close to the power and be filled. We've already seen the danger of that with Simon the sorcerer. Oh, let me just get close to what you're doing. In fact, I'll give you a little money. Give me some of that power. It's not how it works. The power falls on the believer, on the repentant, on the person who says, I believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You must personally repent and believe. And when every born again Christian does that, they repent and believe by faith and they're regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, obviously then the Holy Spirit falls on them. He indwells them. He empowers them. He never leaves them. He never forsakes them. He gives them power over death and power over, over demons and power over their depravity. They're indwelt by the spirit of the living God. And part of the evidence of that during this first century was speaking in tongues. So there's no fear about what's happening here. There's excitement and joy in biblical speaking in tongues. Your next blank says that, the speaking in tongues, verses 45 and 46. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared... Well, this verse, verse 45 says, the circumcised, that would be a reference to the Jews. So the Jews that came with Peter from Joppa to Caesarea to be a witness to the Gentiles, they were just amazed. They're just now getting what Peter kind of already got from his vision. They're like, man, these Gentiles are now speaking in other languages. The Holy Spirit has now been poured out on them and they are hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. The word for tongues here is the same word that we saw in Acts 2. And in Acts 8, it's the word glossa. It means that they were speaking in a known language. Acts 2.4 says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. Again, Acts 2 verse 8, and how is it that we hear of, uh, and how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Just specifying, this is not ecstatic speech. This is not a heavenly language outside of the comprehension of the human ear. These are people miraculously speaking in languages that would communicate gospel truth and affirmation, affirmation of the authenticity of the gospel, transforming their hearts. We, we read the same word in Acts 2.11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So this is what shocked the Jews there in that verse. He, when it says the circumcised, these Jews here, that's what shocked them. I mean, anybody can say that they're a believer. Anybody can say, okay, I believe in Jesus now. But the part of the outer sign, at least immediately as the church spreads to bring affirmation of God's power was this gift of speaking in tongues. It shocked everybody. They're shocked that these Gentiles in Caesarea, not only that they're being saved, but they're receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit and they're speaking in real languages about the goodness and the greatness of God. At this point, Peter declares in verses 47 through 48, the baptism of the new believers. The baptism of the new believers. Can anyone 
withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Water baptism was the next order of business. Cornelius and his family and his friends had heard the clear preaching of the gospel. They had repented of all of their sin and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had been filled with the Holy Spirit and were speaking in tongues. And now it was time for them to obey the Lord's command to be baptized. New believers were baptized in Acts 2 in Jerusalem. The new believers were baptized in Acts 8 in Samaria. And now the new believers are going to be baptized here in Acts 10 in Caesarea. The word baptize means to immerse. It means to dip. They were baptized as believers by immersion. Baptism doesn't save you. The mode of baptism doesn't save you. But baptism is commanded to all who come to faith in Jesus. Jesus had said that in the Great Commission, go therefore making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so after they were baptized, Peter remained for some days, no doubt, to continue to teach, to continue to encourage, and to continue to walk with these new believers in their newfound faith. What do we learn from our passage this morning? God saves people through his word. And this message ought to give us great hope that God can save anybody. If God can save the Taliabu people in the jungles of Indonesia, and if God can save this Roman centurion in Caesarea, then God can save you. And he can save your family. And he can save your friends. And he can save that person that you've been praying for for years. He can save them in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, he can save that family member. There's no one outside of the reach of God. And from this passage today, we're being reminded of the importance of us reaching out across cultural divides in the name of Christ. God does not show partiality. He is no respecter of persons. Mahatma Gandhi shares in his autobiography that in his student days in England, he was deeply touched by the reading of the Gospels and seriously considered becoming a convert to Christianity, which seemed to offer a real solution to the caste system that divided the people of India. One Sunday, he attended church services and decided to ask the minister for enlightenment on salvation and other Christian doctrines. But when Gandhi entered the sanctuary, the ushers refused to give him a seat and instead suggested that he go elsewhere to worship with his own people. He left and never came back. If Christians have caste differences also, he said to himself, I might as well remain a Hindu. God forbid that we would ever discriminate against any culture, any people, or any person whom God may be calling to himself. There are no unreached people if God reaches down from heaven, regenerates a dead heart, and saves a person through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's you today, and God's reaching into your heart 
after we have communion and sing our last song, we'll have a few people available by that back door. We would love to talk to you about how you can come into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here today and there's some people that God's laid on your heart through this message that you need to reach out to, get ready to get out of your comfort zone. It wasn't easy for Peter to come and hang out with a bunch of Gentiles in Caesarea. There's a first time for everything. And it may be an opportunity for you with deep conviction in your heart to say, you know what, I'm going to be that witness. I'm going to be that faithful person to go into this house, to go into this setting, to go into this part of our community and share the love of Jesus with others because we don't want any unreached people here in Santa Clarita or around the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy of looking at this incredible passage. What a joy it is to just see the power of the Holy Spirit regenerating Cornelius, falling into the hearts of those who repented and believed, the faithfulness of Peter. And just pray, God, that as we're inspired by what we've heard from your word this morning, that it would move us in our heart of hearts to be faithful, to be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ and to share your love with others that through repentance and faith there can be forgiveness of all of our sins. What a beautiful message. What a beautiful name. The Lord Jesus Christ who saves people from their sins and it's in his name we pray. Amen.